You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. If you're joining us for the first time, we are here every week at this time. And if you're a new listener, welcome. This is where we talk about what is going on presently in the context of what's happened in the past. We believe your history professor was right. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And we look at what's going on presently in the economy, take a look at other times historically when conditions were similar, and we provide you a forecast of where we're headed and give you some ideas as to what you might think about doing with your assets. Now, some of you may have seen the recent op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal written by Philip DeMuth. Uh, Mr. DeMuth, incidentally, is the author of the book, The Overtaxed Investor, Slash Your Tax Bill and Be a Tax Alpha Dog. So Mr. DeMuth has a, an interesting flair for the dramatic. The title of this article is Congress is Coming for Your IRA, and it's all about an act that recently passed the House by a wide margin. The vote was 417 to 3. I don't think anything has been this bipartisan in a very long time. The SECURE Act, SECURE actually is an acronym, standing for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act. Now, that's obviously a very nice-sounding title, but buried in the bill, it eliminates one of the premier IRA planning strategies known as a stretch IRA. Now, I warned about this in a book that I wrote uh, nearly 10 years ago now called Economic Consequences. And in that book, I concluded that at some future point, I thought it would be difficult for Congress to resist the urge to tax IRAs at a higher rate, given the amount of money that exists in retirement accounts. Now, according to the Investment Company Institute, there's about $29 trillion invested in retirement accounts. Uh, so let's just say pushing $30 trillion, which is higher than the current national debt. Now, the stretch IRA planning strategy, uh, just to explain it for those of you that may not be familiar with it, it lets savers, it lets IRA investors, and this applies to 401ks and 403bs and every other kind of qualified retirement account as well, it allows investors in these retirement accounts to leave the accounts to children, grandchildren, or even a non-family beneficiary. And using the stretch-out rules, the recipients, those who inherit the retirement accounts, can parcel out distribution from the accounts over the course of their actuarial lifetime. So what that means is, if you're 50 years old and you inherit dad's IRA, and at age 50, let's assume you have a 35-year life expectancy, then you're required to take only 1 35th out of that account and pay taxes on it, claim it on your income tax return, and the rest can grow tax-deferred. The next year, you'll take out 1 34th, the next year, 1 33rd, and so on. So to quote from Mr. DeMuth's op-ed piece, he says, a parent could die with the knowledge that whatever their children might experience in life, they won't have to worry about retirement. Now, Congress wants to kill this. The SECURE Act gives non-spouse beneficiaries just 10 years to pull all the money out of an IRA. 
the effect would be to make more of an IRA subject to higher taxes sooner. Distributions now cannot be made over a lifetime, but rather have to be done over 10 years. So these distributions will be much larger and will be, tend to be taxed at a much higher rate. Mr. DeMuth concludes that up to one-third more of an inherited IRA would get gobbled up by taxes than under current rules. Now, we have talked about this in the most recent book that was released last year called the IRA Transformation Plan, though our current tax rates are set to revert back to the higher rates that were in effect in 2017 in 2026. So in other words, in just seven tax years, tax rates will revert back to higher levels. When that happens, should the stretch IRA be eliminated, even a greater share of these retirement accounts will be consumed by the IRS. Now, there is some trade-offs in the SECURE Act as it passed the House. Congress will push back the age at which retirees must first take their required minimum distributions. That will go to 72. It's currently 70 and a half, so you would be able to delay or defer taking your first distribution from your retirement account for 18 months. Now, Mr. DeMuth says this is not the deal American savers were promised when they made contributions to their IRAs in the last 20 years. Also, I like to point out that when IRAs were actually invented back in the 70s, it was ERISA that made IRAs now a vehicle that existed to allow people to save for retirement with some tax advantages. At that time, Social Security benefits were not, ta were not taxable, but in 1983, Social Security benefits became taxable, and taking distributions from an IRA, even though they were required, could cause your Social Security benefits now to be taxable at a higher level. Now, we talk about this relationship and give you some planning strategies at a Social Security maximization event that we hold periodically. Uh, to check out one in your area, you can visit socialsecuritydinner.com, uh, and there are uh, events coming up during the month of August. So you might want to check that out, and we'll be talking more about this SECURE Act at that event as well. Now, let's just take an example. Let's say that a $1 million IRA passes to a high-earning adult daughter. At the very best, she would have to take payouts of $100,000 of annual income, that's a million dollars divided by the 10 years allowed under the SECURE Act, $100,000 of annual income on top of her salary for a decade. And if she happens to live in a high-tax state like New York or California, half or more of the annual payout's value could be lost to taxes. And think about someone who is doing college planning. Take a middle-income family doing college financial planning, college aid financial planning for their children. If they were to inherit, say, a $500,000 IRA and take payouts of $50,000 a year for 10 years, they would be richer on paper when they complete their FAFSA form than they actually are and would certainly significantly hamper or limit their ability to qualify for need-based financial aid. Now, there is a provision in the SECURE Act uh, that the insurance industry really likes. It would mandate that annuities be offered as a payout option in all retirement plans. 
Now, Mr. DeMuth makes an interesting observation. He says the mandatory offer of an annuity in a retirement plan is a first step that could lead to the mandatory annuitization of all retirement accounts. In other words, what he's saying is we could get to a point that it would be mandated that you take an annuitization or a pension payout from your retirement account. Mr. DeMuth says this would shoehorn the distributions into higher tax brackets, accelerate the collection of tax revenue, and eliminate the problem of the inherited IRA. And best of all, politicians would get to accomplish all this without voting to raise taxes. Now, in light of this, uh, we are working on an updated edition of the IRA transformation plan. Stay tuned uh, to this radio program or visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com to get more information as that becomes available. And again, I would encourage you to go check out socialsecuritydinner.com and register to an attend event, attend an event rather, if you've not yet done so. We'll be talking about IRA taxation and this more at that event. So again, socialsecuritydinner.com is what the website that you'll visit to check that out or register for an event. I'll be back with Dr. Robert McHugh. Stay with me. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Dr. Robert McHugh. Uh, Bob is president and chief executive officer of Mainline Investors, and he was the chief financial officer for two of the largest regional commercial banking corporations um, for two decades. He has a doctoral degree in finance and a master's degree in business administration. He has testified before the U.S. Congress on Federal Reserve matters, matters rather, and he's the author of over a dozen published articles on investment-related topics. Um, his most recent book is The Coming Economic Ice Age, and uh, you can learn more about Dr. McHugh's work at technicalindicatorindex.com. He is one of the hardest-working newsletter writers in the country. The website, again, is technicalindicatorindex.com. And, Bob, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's just start for our listeners that may not know what the term technical analysis means. Can you give them a crash course? Sure. What, what it really is, is it's evaluating the uh, group psychology of all investors with all information about everything known on the planet together. And what we've discovered is that uh, they, uh, the group Uh, psychology uh, in union creates patterns, patterns in stock market pricing and in gold pricing and any other market you want to track so that we are able to discover uh, where the markets are headed based upon these patterns. In fact, these markets are actually telling us where they're headed next because, again, it is the accumulation of all knowledge by all people uh, about everything that's known on the planet. And um, the group psychology moves from greed to fear based upon this knowledge. And there are heads-up patterns uh, that actually tell us where they're going. And over a period of time, people have tracked the correlation of these patterns with subsequent moves. So it's a science of 
understanding the patterns, reading them, and then making the prediction. You know, uh, I'm I'm listening to you talk, and you talk about group psychology, and we often talk here on the program about uh, human behavior is predictable, and you're really talking about the predictable predictable behavior of groups of people or, or crowds, and in this example, market participants. So from your studies, Bob, uh, to what extent do these market price patterns repeat themselves? Oh, they repeat themselves over and over continuously, uh, have for hundreds of years, uh, way back into the days of the uh, Holland Tulip uh, economies. Uh, and, and I'm sure that you could go even further back, although it's hard to get the data. But uh, these patterns continuously repeat. Uh, in my book, I have a pattern that I've been tracking. It's a, kind of an ominous pattern that has showed up a dozen times or so over the last 120 years. And each time it led to a major stock market decline. So uh, they definitely repeat. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're something we can, it's kind of, you know, kind of like language we can continue to rely upon. Uh, what it's saying, it's speaking to us. So, Bob, when when we talk about stocks, one of the uh, big issues that has really been driving the market from a fundamental perspective over the past couple of years are corporate stock buybacks. So to what extent does this fundamental analysis of stocks show up in technical analysis? I mean, is, is it kind of baked in? Yeah, it is. The, the technical analysis take considera- c- takes into consideration everything, like the, uh, the recent tax cut that gave corporations a 40% tax break, a tax reduction, uh, which is really the reason their earnings have been boosted over the last year, year and a half, which translated into a rising uh, stock market. And there was a pattern, uh, we call it a megaphone top, that was calling for a major rally uh, from uh, late last year uh, through, through about now. Uh, based upon these earnings uh, from corporations because they got to save money uh, in paying taxes to the federal government. And, uh, you know, they took a lot of that money, and instead of plowing it back into the economy, uh, they ended up buying back their own stock with the cash savings in order to boost their own stock prices. So that was disappointing as far as uh, economic growth goes. I'm not sure that's what they intended when they did the law, but it was good, smart finance business by the corporations themselves. So, Bob, moving ahead, um, let's just look at major U.S. stock market indices. Uh, Taking a look at now, there's a lot of pressure uh, politically to have the Fed reduce interest rates. Uh, What's your forecast? What's your analysis telling you as to the direction in the immediate future of U.S. stock market indices? Yeah, we are watching this, uh, what I call a megaphone top pattern. And it's interesting because this megaphone pattern shows up in a small short-term level over the past couple months. And then there's a similar pattern of a larger pattern uh, from 2017, same pattern megaphone. And then there's a gigantic one, which is the subject of my book uh, that started back in 1986 which is very unusual and huge. And all three of them are concluding right now. Uh, So uh, they're kind of all pinpointing uh, a top that's uh, very close at hand, um, possibly now, possibly in a few months. And uh, once these patterns finish, the typical reaction is a dramatic decline out of the top of these patterns uh, for many, many months and sometimes many years, depending on the the size of the, uh, the, the pattern. So we're at, we're at a caution point here. We have 
kind of a, an orange flag, flag, so to speak. And once this thing starts tumbling, maybe maybe we'll turn to a red flag a warning. But uh, this is something very concerning. We got to keep our eyes on, uh, and it's a very reliable pattern that's been around for hundreds of years. So, Bob, I'm, I, if I heard you correctly, there are three uh, megaphone fat patterns over different time frames that are really all concluding at the same time. So, the more patterns that you have over more time frames, all kind of reaching the same conclusion at the same time, does that add validity to your analysis when you study what's happened historically? Yes, it does. It adds a lot of validity uh, because there's, they're independent of each other. They're, there's like three different opinions all saying the same thing, uh, which I find kind of, kind of interesting and uh, something people need to be very careful of when they, when they plan their personal finances in, in regards to how much they want to have in the stock market versus uh, play, uh, positions and, and strategies they want to take to kind of uh, diversify and then something a little, a little different maybe uh, to protect themselves. So, Bob, do you, you're, you're then, um, if, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're predicting that we are uh, nearing a market top and that a decline, perhaps a major decline, uh, is approaching. Uh, confirm that forecast for me, and then uh, are you uh, so bold as to maybe make some uh, downside target predictions on, say, the S&P 500 or the Dow? Yeah, I mean, the industrials right now are sitting around 27,000, 27,135 as we speak. Um, the, the downside target for the, uh, the mid-range pattern uh, is in the low 20,000, so 20,000 to 21,000 area. That's the uh, initial downside target for that pattern. Now, these things don't fly down. You know, it might be a stair-step decline uh, over time, but... Uh, but um, the time frame could be you could reach that level in the next year or two. So that's a and 25 to 30 percent decline. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's considered a crash. And then, uh, you know, the megaphone from 1986 is the one that's startling and very, very, uh, very, very uh, dangerous. Uh, this thing has a downside target of the area of 4,000 on the Dow. And that may sound crazy, but... Um, it puts us in what we, an experience like we saw in the 30s or even worse because um, this, this one bothers me because there's, a, there's actually two patterns. One is the, the megaphone top pattern with a downside price target of, uh, uh, you know, 4,000 in the Dow and look at this 500 in the S&P 500. And there's also a rising bearish wedge pattern that overlaps it. And that has the exact same downside price target. That's two independent patterns, measuring investor psychology, all knowledge of the planet. It tells us something's coming, something's up, something high risk, something that's shocking. Uh, I don't know exactly when does that, does that move start slowly now, and then five to seven years, it's where it's hitting the bottom, or, or 10 years, it's hitting the bottom. But it, it suggests a period of time of uh, batting down the hatches uh, of chaos. Uh, in my book, I've mentioned that most of the time we see these large patterns, they're associated with major wars. And so there's going to be an upheaval. There could be civic unrest and uh, all kinds of stuff that nobody wants to really think about. Um, but the patterns are, are, are giving us the warning. And like I said, this big one is it's 
got two patterns. It's the megaphone top and the rising, which both very reliable patterns. And I don't want to scare people, but it, it, they're there. It, it may mean people should move conservatively, um, be careful, and cautious. Well, if you are just joining us, we are chatting today with Dr. Robert McHugh. Uh, Bob's website, if you'd like to check it out, is technicalindicatorindex.com. That's technicalindicatorindex.com. There's a lot of great information there. I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. And Bob, you are a registered investment advisor. So let me ask you this. If someone is listening to this and they're aspiring to have a comfortable, stress-free retirement, say they're within 10 years of retirement, what kind of advice would you be giving them? Well, uh, that's a great question. I, I, we have at our website, we have a conservative portfolio model to try to come up with the answer to that question. And what we have a mix of is we say to ourselves, okay, which is the country that's got the greatest military on earth that probably the government obligations would be the most reliable to, to purchase? And our answer to that is the United States. So U.S. Treasuries, uh, right now, their yields are pretty decent in, in, in comparison where I think they're headed. I think they're headed lower. Um, because that's what's going to happen. There'll be a flight to quality. So right now you get like 2%, and uh, so there's a place for, for 2% return on treasuries. Uh, I think a, a, another strategy which we've thought of is, is, is positions in gold, silver, uh, mining stocks, uh, whether you want to hold them physically or you want to have some physical and some in the exchange-traded funds that represent these. Um, there are different risks with that. But there's also risk with fiscal holding because you have safekeeping issues, you have liquidity issues. Those are another options. A cash in FDIC insured banks that, um, again, we're making a bet here that the United States survives um, because what else are you going to do? Uh, so, you know, you do the best you can with the knowledge you have. Those would be some safe steps. I, I, I'm not saying to totally abandon the stock market, but maybe uh, in case this this, this decline delays another couple of years because of Fed actions or the, 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 the pattern needs a little more time to finish because it's a very large pattern. It might need another year. I'm not sure. Um, so maybe a little small piece of, uh, of the stock market, something like that. Uh, maybe some dollar cost averaging if prices drop, you buy a little bit more and some safe, safe equities. But definitely we would scale back the percentage of equities uh, at this time and go into more conservative things like cash, gold, and um, treasuries. Well, our guest today is Dr. Robert McHugh. Uh, the website is technicalindicatorindex.com. His most recent book, uh, which I have read, and uh, as we talked before we started to record today, uh, it's about five years old, but still very relevant. I would encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's titled The Coming Economic Ice Age. And uh, the good news is I am going to continue my conversation with Bob when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio, and I have the pleasure today of chatting with Dr. Robert McHugh. If you're just joining us, Bob's most recent book is The Coming Economic Ice Age. I would encourage you to pick it up, and you can learn more about his work at technicalindicatorindex.com. And, uh, Bob, we've been talking about uh, your forecast for the stock market, a rather 
ominous forecast and that you're predicting a pretty significant downside over the long term. Uh, let me just shift gears based on that premise and talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve. Uh, to, to what extent would you say that the quantitative easing programs and the, the easy money uh, posture that the Fed has maintained since the financial crisis has been a driving factor or maybe the primary driving factor in this bull market? Yeah, there's been a, a, a tight correlation between the easing of, of money policy and the rise of the stock market. Um, they have printed their way out of the last Great Recession. Uh, the problem is it has created massive inflation that is nowhere near represented in the uh, uh, the CPI consumer price index uh, figures at all. And the reason is, uh, and I, I sound cynical here, but uh, the, the, you know, social security payments, a lot of government obligations uh, are are tied into the CPI index, and, and they're supposed to be increasing pension pension payments are supposed to be tied in the CPI calculations, leases, and so on. And and so you know, the the official report of, of inflation is is false. It's nowhere near close. And uh, as a result, the middle class is getting creamed by the inflation that has come from the uh, the QE programs, quantity of easing. And sure, the stock market's up, but is everybody any, anywhere further along than they were before when you look at the cost of living? I'm not so sure. I mean, it's kind of like moving the money from one basket to another. Uh, the numbers are higher, but so are the costs for everybody. And and so they, they kind of have us still in a kind of a tight spot as far as the economy goes. I don't think it's anywhere near as strong as um, the pundits like to, to make us think it is. Uh, most households are struggling. Middle class households are disappearing. They're struggling to stay middle class. It's very, very tough for all people that are retired on fixed incomes and so on. So uh, the QE program, well, was successful nominally in, in getting the stock market up. I'm not sure it did much for the economy. You know, Bob, as you're talking, I'm reminded of uh, a statement or a quote from the late economist Herbert Stein. He said that if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And it seems to me that there's more pressure on the Fed to reduce interest rates, which will likely, again, yield uh, lead rather to potentially uh, more money printing or quantitative easing. So in your view, based on your technical analysis, uh, one, do you, do you see it stopping? And if two, uh, what does the end game look like? Well, the end game, according to the stock market, is it's not going to be good. Uh, you know, at some point, the QE isn't going to work. Uh, and, and, you know, the lower interest rates right now, are they shooting themselves in the foot? I mean, savers are not getting any returns. I mean, in past generations, you know, retired people could get eight, nine, ten percent on their on their money. I mean, you can't get anything now less than you know two percent, half a percent, stuff like that. Uh, it's hard to handle, uh, you know, retirement when you can't get a return. So QE is is going to lower interest rates. It's going to, you know, the policy of lowering interest rates. That's 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 not really helping. Uh, you know, the main, mainstream America, uh, sure, borrowing costs go down, but, um, you know, that, I'm not sure that's stimulative. It's, it's, a, it's a psychological uh, boost for Wall Street. They get excited about it. It's a lot of money. When they do the QE, they're actually pumping money into the economy, and that money goes to Wall Street. It doesn't go to Main Street. It goes to Wall Street. 
And then Wall Street is supposed to dribble it down, which, you know, a lot of the money never gets dribbled down. It just creates more inflation. So uh, the end game, I don't think it's going to be that good. But I know there is a lot of pressure to lower interest rates. And from the Fed's perspective, they see the risks that, you know, they have technical analysis uh, departments and people. They know what's going on. They see the psychology of the, of the mass scale of uh, investors, participants, market participants. They know the danger. They see these patterns. And uh, so they're concerned. And, uh, you know, they also know other risks that you and I don't know how close we are to war with Iran or North Korea or some plague that's coming. And, you know, there's so many different things you read about all the time that they know those risks. And they're, they're we're pushing the drop interest rates. And I don't think it's so they can push the stock market any higher. I mean, it's been going up pretty hard the last several months. So, you know, so if they start lowering rates now, I ask the question, why? What's, what's up? What's going on? What, do you, what, are they, what are they worried about? And then they're going to use up their ammunition. I mean, what are they going to, they're only going to go to zero. And then are we going to end up with negative interest rates like, like Europe has? That hasn't, that hasn't solved anything. And, you know, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to go there because that was my effect. I made a note while you were talking. So since you brought it up, uh, we're on exactly the same wavelength. I was going to ask you, you know, what, what's your take? I mean, 15 years ago, if someone has, would have told maybe either one of us that 25% of the world's sovereign debt is going to yield negative interest rates, We'd have probably said you're crazy. That's never going to happen. And yet, uh, you know, here's where we are. Uh, th- does that give the Fed more room? And do we eventually see that policy here? And you know, does does that lead to the same bad ending we just discussed? Yeah, I think it does end in the same bad ending. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a, not, a concept that's crazy when you think about it. I'm going to give the government my money so they can hold it, and I'm going to get back less. I mean, that's like tax. It's like, why would anybody do that? Um, it, it makes no sense at all. It's, it's certainly not pro-growth. It's, I don't understand it, to be honest with you. It, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a tool that would be successful. Uh, and charts are saying that. I mean, you look at these predictive charts. They're not saying that will be successful. And I don't think Europe's done very well. Uh, I have a lot of subscribers from Europe and the stories I hear, you know, they're struggling over there. They don't like what they see. Um, they're not happy with the policies. Um, you know, and a lot of them, you know, are looking at the United States for leadership. So Bob, getting back to the fact that this, uh, you know, this, this inflation and, and as you were talking, I'm going to have uh, John Williams on the program in a couple of weeks and he does a terrific job tracking, you know, the alternate data. What's the, what's the real inflation rate. But one of the, one of the things that many of my guests uh, have, have recommended and I've kind of adopted is to track the ratio of the, the price of the Dow priced in dollars versus the price of gold per ounce tracked in dollars because it gives you a maybe a little better feel for the, the real valuation of the stock market. Uh, I'd like your opinion on that indicator first, and then I want to talk a little bit about gold if we could. Yeah, I like that indicator a lot. John Williams does a great job, by the way. I, I like his work too. And, uh, you know, he, he aims toward truth, which we need truth. And, uh, uh, I agree with you that the gold uh, gold ratio to the, to the Dow is, is a fabulous tool. And in inflation terms, you know, actually we talked back in um, a long time ago, uh, January 2000 uh, is when I think we talked in an inflation-adjusted basis. And uh, everything else since then has been inflation. Um, 
but the real value of the Dow, I think, it topped 20 years, almost 20 years ago. And that's because of what you just described. It, it's, uh, it's funny money. It's funny money. And, and they're not measuring inflation correctly. But, yeah, sure. Gold is, uh, gold is, a, is a truth barometer. So, Bob, given that, uh, you know, when it comes to currencies around the world, every currency in the world now, um, to my recollection or my knowledge, is a fiat currency, not backed by anything tangible. Uh, so we've kind of got this race to the bottom as far as currencies go. Who can devalue more quickly to win the export game? Um, at what point do you see the dollar maybe – there's some signs that the dollar is losing favor, but when do you see the dollar maybe being displaced as a reserve currency, if at all? You know, I hear a lot that it might be re- replaced. I don't see it right now. It's, in my view, the country with the strongest military and the strongest economy will, will continue to have reserve currency. And that, to me, in, in my estimation, is the United States. So I see the dollar continuing to be the world's reserve currency. Now, there'll be attempts to change that, and that could end up with war. I mean, any attempt to change that could result in a war. That could be a catalyst for war. Um, so, you know, I think the dollar could also be seen as a safe haven during a time of crisis. Even though it's paper and fiat, the, you know, it's an, it, the, the ease of transfer, the ease of uh, conducting transactions, the monetary uh, efficiency of it, and the and the fact that it's from the United States that originates here, even though it's fiat, could draw buyers, could draw um, demand for it. So I think the dollar isn't going to like plunge or anything like that. I think it'll hold up fairly well, which is why I think cash is an okay conservative option for a for a conservative portfolio um, from an FDIC insured institution. So, Bob, when we go back and look at uh, your analysis of of the gold market, um, what are your what's your analysis telling you? What, what's your future forecast for gold? Uh, up, 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 up. Uh, short term, sixteen fifty. Right now, it's trading around fourteen hundred ish. I think it's headed to uh, to sixteen fifty over the next sometime this year, maybe later this year. Uh, and I think that uh, as the crisis hit uh, in, in world economies and our economy, the stock market is predicting, because it's not just predicting a price about the, the, the stock market, it's predicting ec- economic recession, economic depression. So people are going to want to turn to gold uh, as a safe haven, and especially if things get fearful with war. Where things maybe things happen, people don't understand. Maybe there's a risk to uh, our government or other governments the way they are operating right now. There could be constitutional changes. We don't know, but gold will be a safe haven. And the charts are very bullish on gold long term, and so that's that's uh, that's a positive at this point. Would you have the same opinion of silver? And then a follow up to that would be if someone had uh, a speculative amount of money that they wanted to invest, uh, would you suggest gold or silver? So both of those questions, if you could, please. Silver is also uh, bullish. I think silver will be will be terrific as well. Gold has always had a premium value over silver. Uh, it's just, it's got 
it's just got a, a better track record. It's more valuable. It's more precious than silver, but silver's a precious metal also. There's industrial use for, for gold. There's medical use for gold. Um, there's a lot of value in gold uh, in addition to its, its uh, precious metal value. It's a, it's a means of exchange. Silver, the nice thing about silver is the coins are smaller. They, they kind of help with the currency transaction in that there's smaller pieces. You know, uh, if you buy junk silver, it's easy to, to, to do smaller transactions. It's hard to take a, a block of gold in the, to a grocery store and buy groceries. But silver, you know, down the, down the pike, if you had to get a, a, a sub-market of an of a exchange uh, to survive, silver coins are certainly have a place as well. And as far as just as an investment, silver should, should continue to track an upward path like gold will. But I'd say gold is slightly a better uh, investment than, than silver. Well, our guest today has been Dr. Robert McHugh. His website is technicalindicatorindex.com. Uh, his book is The Coming Economic Ice Age. I would encourage you to check it out. And I'll give you the website one more time, technicalindicatorindex.com. And, Bob, thanks for joining us today. Love to have you back. Thanks, Dennis. It was a pleasure. Anytime. I'd, I'd love to be back anytime. Thank you very much. really enjoyed it. We will be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're along with me today. And, you know, I want to talk to you in this segment a bit about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I want to go back and talk to you about Johnny Appleseed. And if you're my age, you undoubtedly learned about Johnny Appleseed as an elementary school student. And the Panic of 1837, because Johnny was definitely affected both in a good way and a bad way by the panic. Now, when you think back to what you learned, probably in elementary school, about Johnny Appleseed, it probably brings visions of kind of an eccentric dude wandering the country barefoot with a pan on his head, flinging apple seeds everywhere as he went. But that's not exactly how the real story unfolded. And again, I'm bringing this up because I want to show you how money printing leads to certain inevitable results. Now, the backstory on this is that Johnny Appleseed was actually born with the name Jonathan Chapman, and he was born in 1774 in Massachusetts. Now, he lived there only a few years. His mother died when he was very young, and his father moved to a different city in Massachusetts and remarried. Now, he had a younger brother by the name of Nathaniel, and he and Nathaniel were eventually joined in the family by 10 half-siblings. So a crowded house for sure. In 1792, Johnny decided to leave the house, and he convinced his brother Nathaniel to go with him. Now, there's not a lot of documentation about the years that immediately followed Johnny and Nathaniel's decision to leave their home, but legend has it that the two lived a nomadic life until Dad and the family moved to Ohio in 1805, 
and Dad convinced Nathaniel to join him and the large family on the farm. John wanted no part of it, so the two brothers parted ways, and John found work as an apprentice for an orchardist. And we know this orchardist was Mr. Crawford. Well, Crawford had apple tree nurseries, and John fell in love with the idea of planting apple trees. And at this time, there was a migration east from east to west in the country, and you could certainly get better deals on land if you would plant productive trees like apple trees. Now, contrary to myth, John was not all that haphazard in his apple tree cultivation efforts. He was actually quite focused and determined, and he actually had a terrific business plan. Now, he had a knack for determining where people were likely to settle as the migration moved westward. So John would get ahead of the migration, would go out and acquire cheap land, and then on that land, he would develop an apple tree nursery. He would build fences around the nurseries, and then he'd hire someone to care for them on a share crop basis, and he would move on and develop another nursery. Now, the caretaker, the sharecropper, would sell apple tree seeds and saplings from the nursery, and John would return every year to check on the trees and settle up. Now, this was John's business model until he died in 1845, and he died a very wealthy man. When he died, he owned 1,200 acres of apple tree nurseries, and he left it to his sister. Now, interestingly, during this time frame, there was money printing that was occurring that certainly helped John become initially successful. The background is this. After the War of 1812, the politicians of the day decided to set up a central bank that could print paper money. They had a lot of war debt, and they were trying to figure out how to deal with the war debt, and there were really only three ways to deal with it, and these three choices have not changed at any time during history. Faced with massive debt, politicians have three choices. They can, one, raise taxes, they can, two, cut spending, or they can, three, print currency. That's what happened after the War of 1812. And history teaches us that whenever money is created, initially it seems that prosperity is everywhere. And certainly, as I mentioned, that contributed to Johnny Appleseed's success. Well, Johnny decided to take the money he made and, as I mentioned, just continue to invest it in more property. And while the property he invested in was a tangible asset, and there's certainly a lesson there, the property values were inflated due to this money creation, and when the bubble in stocks and real estate finally burst in 1837, took over 20 years for this bubble to build and then burst, Appleseed saw his business decline and his net worth decline as well. Prior to the panic, John was getting 6.25% for an apple tree sapling. After the panic, the trees brought only 2 cents. Now, there's a couple lessons here. One, the more things change, as I said, the more they stay the same. Faced with bills they couldn't pay in 1812, the politicians of the day collectively decided to print money. It's, incidentally, the same choice that we're seeing today. And two, the outcome of money printing is always eventually the same. Money printing creates bubbles that eventually burst, which means that we have inflation followed by deflation. And it's difficult, if not impossible, to predict when the inflation stops and the deflation starts. 
And that's why it's so important to utilize a two-bucket approach in the way you manage your investment assets. You need some of your assets in types of vehicles that will be insulated from a bust or a deflationary crash. And you need some of your assets in a vehicle that will appreciate as the dollar depreciates. And certainly that means some tangible stuff. If you'd like to get more information, we have resources at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. We also talk about this at our events. Uh, We have an upcoming event in your area. You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com and find out the details. We talk about maximizing Social Security as well as the two-bucket approach at these events. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. 